This morning I'd like to <clears throat> continue our investigation that we began last time on the nature of fear and how to work with, how to practice with fear. And the intention last time, and I'll continue with it this time, is to support our investigation and work with fear both in terms of our experience of various aspects of fear and work with it, and also in terms of responding to fear when it manifests in others, including in the uh, larger public and in the world. And so the, the choice of the topic initially was in part to respond to what seems like an increase in fear in the world and fearful events. And of course, in the last week, we've had another uh, very um, horrible event come to people's notice. Not that there were all sorts of other horrible events that didn't necessarily come to our notice, but we, we have attended to the events in San Bernardino, probably most of us. So what I wanted to do was to continue from the explorations last time to give a brief, actually, actually um, to give a little bit uh, of an overview of what we explored last time and then go into some more territory, uh, some different emphases today, sort of filling, filling out the topic. And again, the, the overriding uh, questions, which I addressed last time, which I'll address today, are what is the nature of fear and how do we practice skillfully with it? Those are the two guiding questions. And I'll also want to give time, particularly in the discussion, I want to leave time in the discussion <clears throat> for us to compare notes from the last week because the invitation last time was to look at the various manifestations of fear internally and externally, study fear, and learn how to be more skillful with... Um, responding when fear is present. Uh, a guiding understanding that I gave last time is that when we look to the nature of fear, we find aspects that are skillful or wise or intelligent, we might say. Maybe I should just say intelligent. And, uh, and those that are unskillful. In other words, fear, like most difficult emotions, such as anger or um, sadness, despair, um, is a mix. And it's a mix of what can be helpful or skillful. And the primary skillful elements of fear is there is danger and it's, it's important to respond to the danger. And then the unskillful aspects are related to uh, what happens with our experience. They're related to confusion, aversion, delusion, proliferation of uh, ungrounded thinking, catastrophizing, negative scenarios, proliferation of all sorts of thinking that is far removed from reality. And so uh, that's the preview of what we actually notice. And then 
we want to uh, find ways to be, to be skillful. And I'll review some of the ways that we looked at last time and then add some further emphases. Um, and I think uh, connect a little bit more our inquiry to how we look at and understand uh, what's happening in the world. So we started last time by looking at the different uh, kinds of fear. And it's just helpful to know that that fear, what we call fear, uh, goes across a range of experiences moving from low-level anxiety to greater levels of anxiety to full-blown fear to uh, the kind of um, perpetual fear that might be there with terror and with um, uh, certain kinds of trauma, where the fear is uh, internal and trauma often internalized in the body so that there is um, um, hypervigilance in the nervous system and the imagining that something horrible could happen any moment related to the original trauma. You know, and again, I, I gave the example of the war veteran who interprets every loud sound as related to the um, war zone and goes into that hypervigilance with the backfire of a car or a firecracker or something like that and is right there and is in that uh, tra- traumatic um, state, really, is, is captured by that. Uh, because the the trauma has been not uh, resolved. Trauma can be resolved. Uh, A lot of very good ways to do that. So fear has that range. And we we, uh, hopefully will hear some further reports of the different uh, kinds of fear. All of those uh, kinds of fear are related to some fear of not surviving, whether it's not surviving physically or not surviving emotionally or in, you know, in, with one's integrity and um, sense of self intact. And so we, we looked last time at the different uh, objects of fear, which are very, very varied. And we, we noted that the um, most central fear of, of people in this country, as shown by surveys, is uh, not death, but public speaking. <laughs> and I mentioned that uh, last time, as I'm reflecting now, that this is the activity that I am engaged in at the present moment. <laughs> and so, uh, and I, I think I mentioned, I don't know if I mentioned last time, but I mentioned how when I first came to more public speaking as a fairly quiet, somewhat introverted person, uh, it was pretty scary. And I remember the first time of major public speaking, my knees were moving. Uh, luckily, I was sitting behind a desk, and my knees were moving about, about two or three feet back and forth <laughs> continually. And, um, but there, you know, that would be there was, you know, my sense of, uh, will I survive as a person with, what, uh, integrity or I don't, I don't know what the word would be, um, um, a sense of uh, being together or whatever 
whatever language we use. And so that, that sense of survival being at stake in some way, in some uh, emotional or social or physical sense, is, is connected with fear. And we, again, we looked last time, uh, people in the group mentioned all sorts of objects of fear, you know, again, ranging from death to embarrassment to loss to pain to um, um, humiliation, etc. You know, we, we looked at, at all of those. There's a lot of fear in the culture, and I thought I'd give an example. Um, this was, I wanted to play something um, that um, uh, was a phone call left on my message machine. Um, so could you please, yeah, please play that right now. See if there's fear that arises. You click at the bottom. You click again. You click again. Yeah. Okay, click again. Okay, we'll let it go for a while. Let's see. <laughs> okay, I'll try it for one time. Center, then I don't even know. Hi, my name is David Gray, and this message is intended to contact you regarding an enforcement action executed by the United States Treasury intending your serious attention. Ignoring this will be an intentional second attempt to avoid initial appearance before a magistrate judge or a grand jury for a federal criminal offense. My number is 646-593-7695. I repeat, it's 646-593-7695. I invite you to cooperate with us and help us to help you. Thank you. <laughs> okay, so um, turn off the volume on the iPod, turn it all the way down, okay. and you can take out the iPod from the cord, that'd be good. Yeah, so these sort of things occur, right? And um, I think I heard that shortly before going to sleep. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so many things can be fearful, including those kind of calls. And um, th after I heard that, the next day I, I uh, did a Google search of the uh, number that I was supposed to call. And of course, I found um, there were like a thousand people commenting on the same call and how they responded. And some people actually called them up and were used profanity and 
so forth. But in any case, it was someone who was, I guess, this sort of thing is they, they look for the 1% uh, or percentage of 1% will be taken in. You know, and, and again, this is very common, uh, making money by arousing fear. Um, so we looked at the um, nature of fear. We looked at it, what's it like in the body? We looked at how we can know how fear manifests at the level of the body. Uh, again, uh, fear as a, really an evolutionary development. There is adrenaline, there's uh, the resources are um, summoned to meet a threat in some way, you know, through uh, that's in the, you know, with the, as it were, the skillful aspect of fear. Again, with the unskillful dimensions of fear, there can be uh, paralysis, constriction, all sorts of ways that we, we get tight, we get uh, paralyzed, we get, we become numb, and so forth. And, um, you know, the heart can be pounding and so forth. So we want to study the way fear manifests in the body so we can know how it works. And particularly for our practice, we want to look at the manifestations of fear in the mind. And we talked about, I've talked about how there can be uh, confusion or uh, fogginess. Again, there are, uh, there could be, with a skillful approach to fear, there could be clear thinking, clear response, and so forth. Um, that, can, that can be present sometime. The unskillful dimensions of fear are probably more more obvious. That's where the thinking becomes foggy, unclear, uh, irrational, uh, where there tends to be proliferation of thinking that goes far removed from the actual experience, proliferation of perhaps uh, catastrophic thinking, negative scenarios, the mind uh, overgeneralizing, going way beyond the immediate reality. Um, this would be unskillful ways that the thought manifests. And again, very, very common. And we can see that again when we look to uh, public reactions to a lot of these events. We can see all those kinds of uh, overgeneralization uh, and so forth. Um, again, there's, a, there's this mix. Again, I think it's very helpful to see this mix of the uh, unskillful and the skillful. Uh, the the uh, recognizing that there is some intelligence in fear can lead us to have some empathy, some compassion, and recognizing the unskillful aspects of fear can let, help us to see through a lot of what's happening and recognize that this is this is unskillful. This is this is fear, uh, as it were, taking over and moving us out of uh, a skillful response uh, to to fear. I mentioned how, again, we can look and see this both in ourselves, we can also see it interpersonally in a community, and we can see that kind of fear uh, socially. You know, and I, men I mentioned last time how after traumatic events in this country historically, there's typically been overreaction and fear has taken over. You know, I, I talked about the internment of Japanese Americans and the, the report by the Congressional Commission that there was actually no national security uh, concern that was valid at all. This was the U.S. Congress reporting this, and that it was based on race prejudice, this, this, I quote, race prejudice, war hysteria, and the failures of leadership. Right? And we could see something very similar after 9-11. Right? 
we can see we can see that it's helpful to know how fear works because then you can see it manifesting. You can see it manifesting in the society. You can see it in um, you know what's happening with the remarks of uh, presidential candidates and so forth. And uh, very very you know even you know we have had something what even in the last few days one of the candidates saying that one way to protect ourselves is to have no Muslims be able to enter the country, presumably including the Muslims who are aligned with us. <laughs> so it, you know, it's, fear goes to extremes in thinking. It's really good to know that because then, because then you can just see, again, how much the politicians are actually fearful and how much it's more demagoguery or manipulation. I don't know the answer to that question. It's probably a mix. You know. Uh, with the individuals, but certainly the audiences, it must be primarily, primarily some kind of fear. So, how do we respond? How do we respond skillfully to fear? Uh, I want to review some of where we went last time, and then add some further pieces. Um, I thought first I'd read something. This is from one of my favorite books by a friend of mine named uh, Ruth Gendler. It's called The Book of Qualities, and it has maybe fifty or sixty. Um, inner states, which are personified as if they were people. You know, so there are personifications of pleasure, worry, fear, patience, confusion, loneliness, despair, judgment, discipline, and so forth. So here is, here is fear, as if fear is a person. And listen as you hear this for some of the skillful and unskillful dimensions of fear. Okay? Fear has a large shadow. But he himself, so fear is a male in this, this, this account, fear has a large shadow, but he himself is quite small. He has a vivid imagination. <laughs> he composes horror music in the middle of the night. <laughs> he is not very social, and he keeps to himself at political meetings. His past is a mystery. He warned us not to talk to each other about him, adding that there is nowhere any of us could go where he wouldn't hear us. We were quiet. When we began to talk to each other, he changed. His manners started to seem pompous, and his snarling voice sounded rehearsed. Two dragons guard Fear's mansion. One is ceramic and Chinese. The other is real. If you make it past the dragons and speak to him up close, it is amazing to see how fragile he is. He will try to tell you stories. Be aware. He is a master of disguises and illusions. He almost convinced me that he was a puppet maker and that I was a marionette. Speak out boldly. Look him in the eye. Startle him. Don't give up. Win his respect, and he will never bother you with unimportant matters. It's a lot there, isn't it? Yeah. So the first tool we talked about last time is mindfulness. And, that, and it's the mindfulness that especially I was encouraging to help us with the, uh, the study of fear, to really be able to keep on looking at the anxiety, at the different forms of fear, how the thinking manifests, to study it really in oneself and in others. Very important aspect. We can't really do that if we're not balanced to a certain degree. Uh, that one of the aspects of fear is that it unbalances us often. 
Not necessarily. I think the more we're familiar with fear, the more we can be balanced with it. You know, as, as a mountain climber might be. Or, you know, as someone who does a lot of public speaking, maybe. You know, as someone who speaks a lot, there are moments when some anxiety or fear comes up. But I'm very familiar with it. And it doesn't, what, uh, doesn't proliferate generally. I just notice it and keep moving on. That's what a mountain climber would do. So if you're really familiar with fear, it um, uh, doesn't uh, paralyze us necessarily or uh, lead us to that kind of what I was calling the unskillful aspects or the diluted aspects of fear when we really know the fear. Again, uh, I think the mountain climber example is a good one. The mountain climber will sometimes have the fear, maybe look down and say, whoops. And, and uh, maybe some of you are mountain climbers <laughs> and can report. But um, the mountain climber would look down, feel fear, and probably come back to balance pretty quickly, right? And just keep moving on. And the fear is a helpful reminder that there is danger in that case, right? And it's not, it's not delusion. Uh, but it, it's worked with skillfully a person's balance. When we're not balanced with fear, we want to have uh, this... Uh, way of coming back to balance. And so very helpful to have this repertoire of ways of working with anxiety or fear if we're unbalanced. Middle of the night, fearful thoughts, how do I let them not take me away? And so we have different tools for that. We have the heart practices, metta, compassion, uh, sometimes forgiveness would be appropriate, um, other heart practices that could be ways to bring us back. I told the story last time of my working with fear in relation to an imagined bear and using metta, mostly for myself and other people, not so much for the bear. You know, and something, the, the metta can have the effect of calming the system. So we can have a repertoire of ways to calm ourselves, to come back to balance, to prevent that uh, tendency of the fear to go into proliferation and going way beyond the actual reality of things, again, which is a strong tendency. Again, the, the uh, tendency to go to negative scenarios. So we can have uh, heart practices. We could have ways of grounding in the body. For some of us, it might be to take a walk, be with beauty, talk to a friend, um, do internal practices, do things externally. All of those are crucial to, at times, uh, come back to balance when there's fear and are, are in a part of the, part of the um, way we work with fear. There's also, uh, when, we're, when we have some degree of balance, at times it can be very, very skillful to choose to go directly into fear. Even to seek it out when we're balanced. You know, uh, sometimes in practice, if we are skillful, we might deliberately go to where we know there's fear such as in people taking Toastmasters classes in public speaking. Right? People do that. Say, we might say, I don't want to live with that fear. Let me go into it, study it, work through it. Very, could be a very important part of practice. And we have you know, stories of practitioners throughout the century who've done that. You know? In the Thai forest tradition, uh, practitioners would often uh, sleep outside, and they sometimes would um, this is actually done, they would do walking meditation outside the caves of tigers. That hasn't caught on in the West. <laughs> <laughs> Not enough tigers. 
not enough tigers, but um, <laughs> there, there could be ways of, of deliberately going into fears, whether they are fears of something outside or fears of something inside. Again, with wisdom and intelligence. Uh, one friend uh, wrote to me just a day or two ago, and she, she said this, going deeply into what fear feels like in the body and mind can loosen the grip of fear. It's not obvious or intuitive that going into the fear will loosen it, but it does. I remember that when I was going into the fear of dying from cancer, this is a woman who had cancer, I was going into the fear of dying from cancer, what it was like to leave behind my children, husband, other loved ones, my work. To go into the fear actually gave me relief and a way to enjoy the time with them more joyfully. Actually, this person, um, the, the cancer, I assume, is in remission or is not a threat now. But she went deliberately into the fear. Strange but true. It's hard to convince others of that, she said, in terms of going into the fear. Um, I remember a time when um, I was practicing. I was doing a long retreat in, um, in England, actually. And there was, um, there was a three-month retreat that I was doing. And I remember at a certain point, I was uh, living in a little cottage, and I was, there, it was at a retreat center called uh, Gaia House in, in England, where they had ongoing retreats. And I was in a little cottage on the edge of the um, property. And I would be um, you know, doing my meditations, mostly in my cottage, and then having meals with the uh, retreatants of whatever particular retreat was occurring. You know, I had my work, I, I tended the garden, I did work in the garden every day. And um, at a certain point, I wanted to um, have a little more solitude. And so I stopped eating with the groups and I, I brought my food back to my cottage. And something seemed to happen. There was some tripwire that was touched that brought about a lot of fear. I started to have a lot of nausea. My body got very, very tight and tense. And um, I actually wasn't having fearful thoughts, but there was a lot of fear in my body. And I guess my mind was fairly still, but there was a lot of fear. And it was happening uh, a lot. And um, it went on for two or three days. And then uh, I had a one-on-one -on -one with one of my teachers who uh, said, uh, what is missing? And uh, asked me about, uh, could I make use of the model of the uh, seven factors of awakening? You know, which of these seven factors are missing? And the seven factors are mindfulness. Well, there's a fair amount of mindfulness. Um, uh, the, the other factors are interest, uh, effort, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And I had several of the factors there, but the one I went to says, joy is clearly not present. <laughs> and, and the teacher said, what would help you to cultivate joy? And I said, well, I think it would probably would make a big difference to go back to uh, eating with the group and to just spend my time being with the beauty of the nature around and just looking at spider webs and flowers and plants and so forth. And so the teacher suggested I do that. And you know, I did it and the nausea went away very quickly. I stopped, you know, I went back to eating with the group. 
the nausea wasn't there, the fear, the, the tightness of the body, it all left, right? And I was very happy. I was proud of myself, thought I was a really good practitioner, yeah. and so forth. You know, so my mind went certain places. And um, then, you know, I, and I think I, it was another four days till I had another one-on-one with another teacher. It was a different teacher. And that teacher uh, heard my report, probably could discern a little bit of pride or whatever and think, oh, I've really taken care of that fear, right? Um, and said, uh, said to me, what about the fear? I said, oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, because I hadn't really dealt with the fear. I had just done which I had set up. I had done what I was calling more finding the antidote or coming back to balance, right? But I hadn't really gone into the fear. And I think she asked me, would you like to actually go into the fear? And I think, and I said I wanted to. And, and so, and I thought that uh, actually uh, going, back, uh, going back to eating in a solitary way would tend to open up to that fear again. There was probably some internal, some internal model where, where the level of solitude was, was scary in some way, something like that. And so, yes, and I decided I really, this was, I remember we had a meeting in the morning, I'll, I'll really go into solitude. You know, I'll, I'll do that. I'll go back to what I was doing. I really face that fear. Um, I think I don't want to do it at lunch, but maybe a little later. <laughs> it's kind of funny. I, I don't want to do it at lunch. I'll do it a little bit later. And so I said, I'll go for the evening meal. I'll go back. Yeah, I'll do it. And so I really gave myself pep talks. I read some of my books. I said, okay, when that fear comes, I'm really going to be with it. When the nausea comes, I'm going to really be present and hang out with it and work with it skillfully. And, um, and so I did. I gave myself this pep talk. I was kind of nervous. You know, I went and got my food. I sat down in my cottage. I waited for the kind of the waves of nausea and the tightness of the body to come. And uh, actually nothing happened. And nothing happened the whole rest of the retreat. It was interesting, right? You know, it was almost like uh, I was willing to go into the fear and that was almost probably 90% or more of what led the fear not to be there in the same way. It was interesting, wasn't it? Like nothing happened at all. Uh, but the willingness to go into the fear was there. And a lot of fear is like that. If we're willing to actually go into it, a lot of it starts disappearing. You may, you may see that in your practice, that it's more the memory, some, it's more the, um, the fear of the fear, as Roosevelt, President Roosevelt said you know, a long time ago. It's the fear of the fear, which is maybe a bigger problem than the fear. Interesting. Try that. Look, look at that yourself. And uh, there's a children's book called The Monster That Grew Small. Some of you may know this, which is about when you actually look at the monster and you're willing to do that. It was, it was like in Ruth Gendler's uh, personification of fear. It's actually not what it presents itself to be. It's, in Ruth Gendler, it's more fragile. In the children's book, the monster grows small when you're really actually willing to go into it. It's very interesting, right? So that can be a big part of our practice. I want to add a few, few more pieces I didn't go into so much last time. An important piece in working with fear with ourselves or with others or seeing it manifesting publicly, I think, is compassion and empathy. Really, really crucial. That, that fear is hard. 
that we can have compassion when we're taken away from fear, by fear and get lost in it, whether it's the middle of the night or something else. There can be really compassion that's there, and compassion can be a very helpful way of working with the fear, holding our situation or someone else's situation with compassion. And empathy, which is really tuning in to how it is for another, I think is very crucial. And it's very crucial even in looking outwardly at maybe politicians or people who are willing to go along with the proliferation and the delusion that is there in fear. I think there can be empathy for that. It's very easy to go to self-righteous condemnation of political demagogues, right? Who are people who are caught by that. I think that's missing a piece. That there's an important piece of having empathy because, again, knowing that fear is a mix of the skillful and the unskillful is important. That can be the basis for everything. That because that can help us to actually know, not just become, uh, not just pick up on the unskillful aspect, which is which is a tendency. Right? It's a strong tendency. We want to. We may go right to a condemnation of this politician or these people or whatever. And I think having some empathy is crucial, particularly, again, I'm not sure the politicians, they may be more manipulative, but the, the people who are in the audiences, surely there is real fear there. And, and it's not, it's not uh, again, there can be a lot of delusion, but there, there can be a skillful piece there. And you can look at this interpersonally as well. Like, because it's when, when one's sense of survival is at stake, whether emotionally or physically, it's very hard to have empathy. Very hard to have empathy uh, for the other. Um, it's also, I think, quite important to, you know, try to understand. And, you know, I think one of the most difficult things uh, that happens with fear, like in the public realm, is that we. Um, Fear doesn't go well with understanding, you know, often. And so, like the fear related to so-called terrorism, for example, there's almost never a wish to understand, which is not the same as condoning. There's almost never a wish to understand, actually, why these people might be acting as they do. There's, there's a, you know, I would say that's a failure of empathy, a failure of understanding. Again, understanding isn't the same as condoning. You know, and it's, it's almost, um, you know, the media almost has a distaste or ignorance for any understanding of history. You can't understand what's happening in the Middle East without understanding history. You know, and interviews with so-called terrorists, and again, the term, even the term is not based on understanding. You know, so, so how do we bring, another way of saying this is how do we bring our commitment as practitioners really to um, universal community, universal metta. That's there in the text. That is clearly an intention. This isn't, you know, and again, and the understanding that um, the deep problems that lead to suffering are those of ignorance and not of evil. There's not a concept of evil. We've gone over this a lot here Wednesdays. Uh, and a lot of the public discourse wants to say that uh, they are evil and we are good. 
You know, in fact, that's why terrorism, I think, is, is typically a term of propaganda. You want to be, look out for that. You know, you can, you can see, it because it's not, it's, it, it doesn't include a lot of factors such as a lot of scholars would talk about state terrorism. You know, and the way, and you can see this when you look at certain countries. You know, you look to certain countries, maybe like Russia, talks about terrorism, but they do way more killing than the terrorists ever do, right? If you look at that historically, you'll see something like that. Anyway, I'm not going to go so much into that analysis, but see, that's, that's territory that's not typically okay to go into, is it? The fear, and the, you know, fear gets aligned with a certain kind of... Um, unwillingness to understand. It was a, there was a taboo after 9-11 to really understand the situation, right? Can't go there. Not acceptable. And so we don't want to, we don't really want to understand the history or the motivation. And, and um, when people have done interview with so-called terrorists, there's always the understanding that their actions come out of a sense of humilia- humiliation and a sense of rage, right? And you look at the history and it's understandable. Again, not to condone it. There are other ways to work with it. But you know, uh, there is a history of um, Western domination and violence and bombing, invasions, killings on a very large scale, right? How many people have died in Iraq or Afghanistan? You know, it's in the several millions, right? You know, how many people have died in ter- from terrorist attacks? Probably... One percent of the people who have died through the Western interventions, right? These are facts that would be commonsensical to people in that region, but not commonsensical to us. Does that make some sense? This is not. This is what we don't want to look at, right? We don't want to understand. Fear can lead one not to want to understand. You know? And so, how do we understand that history? You know, or, or do we really want to understand the history? Another aspect of um, practicing with fear is knowing that we can keep training and bring this intention for resolving conflict and um, being skillful with fear into our personal lives and our, uh, our interpersonal lives as well as how we intervene socially. Someone who is really knowledgeable about fear can really um, do a lot. You know, and it's helpful for me to find, uh, to read the stories of people who have been skillful with fear. You can see the film about the life of Aung San Suu Kyi of Burma, whose main book is called Freedom from Fear. You know, so we have this, um, I think, learning from people who've been very skillful in tense situations to cut through fear and to work with it. Um, you know, you can remember um, there are a lot of stories, for example, in the life of Dr. King, you know, where he was with fear and came through that fear in different ways. And the stories are very powerful. You know, there's an amazing story of when he was um, early in the Birmingham campaign in 1955 or 56, he was getting uh, hate calls on his telephone. There weren't answering machines at the time. He picked it up. He picked up uh, uh, the phone one day and um, got a phone call and basically uh, the person 
uh, used the N-word and said, we are tired of you and your mess now. If you aren't out of this town in three days, we're going to blow your brains out and blow up your house. Right? And he got locked into fear. So you see, all, all of these people we admire had their own learning processes. You look to a lot of people, and he uh, couldn't sleep. His family was asleep. He made himself a cup of coffee and sat down in the ki- at the kitchen table. And this is what he said. I was ready to give up. I tried to think of a way to move out of the picture without appearing to be a coward. It was around midnight. You can have some strange experiences at midnight. This is that fear and proliferation. I sat there and thought about a beautiful little daughter. She was the darling of my life. I'd come in night after night and see that little gentle smile. And I sat at that table thinking about that little girl and thinking about the fact that she could be taken away from me any minute. And I started thinking about a dedicated, devoted, and loyal wife who was over there asleep. And she could be taken from me or I could be taken from her. And I got to the point that I couldn't take it any longer. I was weak. I might have said I was fearful. Something said to me, you can't call on Daddy now. He's up in Atlanta, 175 miles away. You can't call on Mama now. You've got to call on that something in that person that your daddy used to tell you about, that power that can make a way out of no way. And I bowed down over that cup of coffee. I never will forget it. I prayed a prayer and prayed out loud that night. I said, Lord, I'm down here trying to do what's right. I think I'm right. I think the cause we represent is right. But Lord, I must confess that I'm weak now. I'm faltering. I'm losing my courage. And it seemed to me at that moment that I could hear an inner voice saying to me, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness, stand up for justice, stand up for truth, and I will be with you even until the end of the world. I heard the voice of Jesus saying, still to fight on, he promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone, no, never alone, never alone. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. This was his talking about this a little while later. And he said, almost at once, my fears began to go. My uncertainty disappeared. And a few days later, his house actually was bombed. Um, He was given word of the bombing. His wife and daughter were in the house, but they were not injured. He was given word of the bombing, and he spoke briefly at the podium. And the uh, listeners were very stunned by the level of uh, calm and the level of steadiness. And he later said of the bombing that the inner experience that he had around that table a few nights before had given him the strength to face what was happening. So there's this kind of inner work, um, touching something deeper, right? Touching something deeper. Again, something that's done has been in all traditions to face fear One might, in Buddhist tradition, one would face death, go sit in the cremation grounds, do meditations on death, go right into them, look at the fear, and the result of that is developing increasingly a fearlessness. So there's there's that kind of cultivation. We can learn, you know, we can learn from people like King and study their lives. You find stories like that. They're quite remarkable. So there's, there's, a, there's a place for um, individual practice, mindfulness of, of fear and anxiety. There's a place for being really skillful to shift out of 
being caught in fear. There is a place for uh, developing empathy and understanding in the social situations of really having a commitment, I think as we have in, in this approach of practice, to have a commitment to find, um, to find the kind heart with every situation, knowing that some are exceedingly difficult and pressured, and having the intention to move towards what Dr. King called the beloved community, or reconciliation, or the sangha of all beings. How do you do that when there are conflicts in the world? One of the ways that I suggested is that empathy and understanding, however unpopular, can be an intention. So let me finish with uh, a quote from Thich Nhat Hanh about the the value of one person who is dedicated to um, fearlessness. In Vietnam, there were many people called boat people who left the country in small boats. Often those boats were caught in rough seas or storms. When that happened, the people would often panic and boats would sink. But even if one person aboard can remain calm, lucid, knowing what to do and what not to do, that person can help the boat survive. His or her expression, the face, the voice, communicates clarity and calmness, and people have trust in that person. They will listen to what he or she says. One such person can save the lives of many. Our world is something like a small boat. Compared with the cosmos, our planet is a very small boat. We are about to panic because our situation is no better than the situation of the small boat in the sea. We need people who can sit still and be able to smile, who can walk peacefully. We need people like that in order to save us. You are that person. Each of you is that person. I'd love to hear any of what you've investigated in the last week, what you found about fear or anxiety, skillful ways of working with it, as well as any questions or reflections related to my talk. Again, it can be helpful, I think, to sometimes start with oneself. Do you get the feeling when you go to the world, it can be overwhelming? <laughs> how, do I, how do I work with that? But, but when we start just with how this manifests in ourself and study it, that's really probably the main intention is study fear really closely, then you can be more skillful with these more difficult situations, whether interpersonal or social. Please. Yeah. Um, last week at our Kalyana Meta yeah. meeting, we were discussing um, Tara Brock's chapter on fear. And I brought up the point that, well, she talked about um, belonging and belonging to a community, a sangha, which greatly reduced fear. Yeah. So I suggested that our group um, have a list of, of um, phone numbers instead of just emails. And just having that piece of paper in front of me and knowing that I can call on any one of them at any time Mm -hmm. was um, 
very comforting. Yeah. To have a sense that sense of belonging in a small yeah. group. Yeah. 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 Community. One of the things about that can happen with fear is isolation or disconnection, and so very very crucial. You know to have. Uh, again, because the phenomenon of fear, we would get locked in to the unskillful aspects of fear, right? And the, the um, role of the community might be to really have us be more skillful with fear, to say, I think you're lost in negative c- catastrophic thinking. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and to have empathy with that, of course, compassion. And yeah, and so community is really crucial in pla- places where one can actually have intimate discussions about fear. That's why sort of the public settings are very hard because it gets, it can get to the level of rhetoric, right? And it's not really necessarily a good place. Um, you know, my friend and uh, colleague and teacher Joanna Macy talks about the importance of having what she calls rough weather networks. Beautiful term, very much like what you're saying. Rough weather networks where people can uh, be with each other when things are a little bit rough, whether individually or on the level of community or society. Just starting with my own self in, in the moment, um, I was feeling um, nauseous and yeah. very, very sleepy. Um, I normally don't, haven't been going out in mornings. Um, I have a lot of practices that I do in the morning, but I, I have difficulty with sleep. And um, I didn't get enough sleep last night, and I didn't have enough food. And I, so I struggle with physical things yeah. when in those situations. And I really wanted to be attentive. I'm really into, I've really been into this um, uh, session and the meditation and the instructions were so valuable to Mm. me today. And so dealing with, uh, and I had a lot of fear. I'm not sure what the fear was, survival of not throwing up, of falling asleep, of I don't know what, falling apart um, with nausea and sleepiness. and I, I had never heard before about not relying on uh, breath if you have asthma. Yeah. Um, and I've always felt uh, a comfort in feeling my feet on yeah. the floor. But I had never had that validated before. Yeah. So as I was feeling these things and struggling with them and trying to stay present to what I wanted to hear, um, I remembered, okay, I can go to my feet. Uh, and that really did help me. And then compassion and bringing compassion to myself. And I was able to finally come uh, past the nausea and past the sleepiness. And so I'm tremendously grateful for mm. the instruction uh, and being able to remember it and um, bring the tools to be able to stay present for um, a very, very valuable um, hmm. focus. Yeah, thank you. For the day. Thank you. I think I think we're um, some of that understanding of using multiple objects came out of a, a deeper understanding of trauma. 
because people, for example, with asthma, being with the breath is not emotionally neutral. And, we, and that, that, fo- that focus of our meditation, of our mindfulness, has to be more or less emotionally neutral. And, and people have had more, people meaning teachers especially, have had more understanding of that just in the last five years or so. You know, my instructions have changed, you know, as, I, as I've studied trauma, for example. Yeah, please. Um, I thought the uh, last sentence in that book that you read about um, something about fear when it's not, there, it's, it, it makes a distinction between fear when it, when it makes sense to be afraid and when it doesn't yeah. make sense to be afraid. And I find, find um, that that's, I'm very familiar with anxiety and fear. Yeah. And um, that distinction can be very important yeah. because there are times when it makes sense to be afraid and it makes sense to react to yeah. that fear. And, but that's, it can be skillful or not skillful. But, yeah. but I spe- think especially now, with the biases we have as humans yeah. to be wired for fear and to be wired to make distinctions, to protect ourselves, it's even more, it gets even more difficult to make that distinction between what's, what is real, even if it could be catastrophic. I mean, yeah. for example, in Germany in the, in the 30s, a lot of people did, thought what you know Jews were you know afraid of was totally crazy. Yeah. It could never happen. Yeah. And so the anxious ones probably left. Yeah. So it's kind of a weird thing to embrace both the um, adaptive nature of it and then to try to balance it with the not crazy part but irrational catastrophic instinct. Yeah. Well. Yeah, no, it's, it's a challenge. I think that distinction really is at the heart of, um, in my view, a wise approach to fear. Again, we, we may kind of err on both sides. We may, we may uh, see fear as somehow a problem, you know, get rid of fear. You know, and a lot of our, even a lot of spiritual language suggests that, right? And I think that is um, both... Uh, not realistic, or not not act, doesn't. I don't think that comes out of looking closely at fear, where there is something that's skillful. There there are real dangers, right? And and it's important to respond to the dangers. And it also, I think, um, uh, without seeing that intelligence of fears, I think we're less likely to be empathic. Her her understanding, you know, like I say, we might, with people who are again would be different with different political orientations, but people probably in this area would tend to be more critical and somewhat condemnatory of some of the people making extreme statements, particularly, you know, from, more from the so-called right wing, and, and without being empathic. I think, that, you know, so we would, not, we would not be empathic towards our political opponents, right? Strong tendencies that way. Uh, just to be condemnatory, self-righteous, and so forth. And uh, so it saves us from that. And then the, the distinction also really invites us to look for the telltale signs of um, unskillful approaches to fear, that is, overgeneralization, proliferation, you know, lack of wanting to understand, inability to uh, be rational, and so forth. Right? Because the, uh, the fear can coexist with clear thinking and skillful response. And, but I think we have to really uh, notice that proliferation. So there can be, you know, 
even in the very extreme cases which you were talking about or you know the example is that when I was talking about the Middle East very you know it's a very extreme situation now those are very extreme I think we train by working with less extreme situations or seeing them and you know then you know if we're really good we can bring them to these very intense difficult situations which are deeply informed by trauma I would say the whole Middle East has been traumatized for a long time you know and these actions you know things come out of out of trauma and that's not again when we have the empathy or understanding we might see that more so yeah uh, but even in those extreme situations there could be skillful ways that try to uh, respond you know that uh, that are that can distinguish between clear thinking and and proliferation of unfounded fears and of course the Another big challenge is the future is unknown to a large extent. <laughs> yeah, so please, maybe maybe one or two more. Thank you. Yeah. Again, the, the principle of training is always that we work with less intense situations and work up to the more intense. <laughs> Important. Yeah. Hi. Hi. If you have a choice. You don't always have a choice. Yeah. Please. Uh, you said a couple of times about uh, focusing on the breath if it's emotionally neutral yeah. or finding something that's emotionally neutral yeah. to, to focus on in meditation. And, and it never occurred to me to intentionally pick something that's not emotionally neutral and wait for the attention to wander and then come back to that thing that's not neutral. Have you ever done that or is that recommended? As a, as a, as a uh, regular way of just doing basic mindfulness practice. Well, no, but as as an exercise, of, you know. Well, it's it's skillful. Um, it is definitely skillful at times when you I think when you have a strong foundation of mindfulness to deliberately go into uncomfortable territory for sure, you know, such as in some of the examples I gave, uh, and to choose uh, one. I don't think I I've heard of or. Uh, chosen that as like the basic meditation object that's just the regular object and the comments I was giving of course were especially for people in establishing mindfulness you know where you want to again we want to establish mindfulness in as neutral a territory as possible so you, you know in a relatively protected relatively safe environment so that these uh, capacities can be developed uh, so I haven't heard of anyone who would take as the kind of the way of basically grounding and develop, you know, just steadying the mind. Because I think the, uh, the practice of steadying the mind, again, I think it's best done where there just aren't any further complications. Once the mind is steady, though, it, and this may be part of what you're getting at, once the mind is steady, it can be skillful to deliberately go into uncomfortable territory of all kinds. You know, and, we don't typically do that as the style here at Spirit Rock. You know, some teachers would guide that. You know, I've done that in my practice a fair amount. You know, and I've had teachers who've guided me to, you know, as in the example I gave, to deliberately go into the fear, um, but not not as a way of because the 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 primary object is uh, the breath or touch points or whatever is there as a way to steady the mind. Once the mind's steady, then you can investigate. Okay, so it's uh, not an easy territory, is it? <laughs>
It would, I think, it, I, and again, I could kind of feel when I was going into the social realm, it's like, ah, this is a lot. You know, we don't know the history and we're, you know, it's, it can be very confusing. Um, but the, I think the, the essence is to really become familiar with fear. Like in that uh, poster I brought in last time, the story of one who set out to study fear. You know, that when we study this we, and then start applying it to what you see among your friends or when there's, uh, you know, again, in very ordinary situations, uh, potential loss or illness or public speaking, study fear yourself. Study it, how it manifests in others. Keep that distinction between what's skillful or intelligent and what is, is not where we get lost in fear. That distinction is at the heart of what we're doing and hold it, hold it with compassion and empathy. Do it first in the environments where you can study it yourself, get to know it well, and then bring it out into all your interactions into the world. And I'll, I'll end just by saying that what we, I think remember what I said last time is that, I think it was really suggested by Thich Nhat Hanh at the end of his, uh, the quote I gave at the end, that the world deeply needs people who, who know what fear is and are skilled to be able to distinguish the unskillful and the skillful aspects and can hold it with empathy and compassion. The world needs us. <laughs> Recognizing that we, we are all continually in training. Okay. So, we invite you again to be present with any intention coming out of the morning. And we offer the benefits of our morning and of our practice to each other, to ourselves, and then beyond the boundaries here, out into the world for the benefit of others. May our practice with fear be of benefit to ourselves and be of benefit to others. So thank you again. And uh, see you in a few weeks. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.